You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Prologue on America's Web Radio, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host. I'm an author myself, and you can find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, all online sites. Now, we call this show The Prologue because that's exactly what it is. And while these introductions are mainly writers, we love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell from other fields and other endeavors as well. Now, if you or somebody that you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, I hope you'll reach out to me, and you can do that through email. I've got a couple of sites, Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Either way, drop me a note, tell me what you're all about, if it's a book or just an interesting story, and we'll get back to you, I promise that, and uh, we'll talk about having you on a future program. Now, our guest for this hour brings us an in-depth look at war, a look through the eyes of his father, who served as a first lieutenant in the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion that landed on Utah Beach on June 6th of 1944. The book carries us through nearly a year with these brave men, from the beaches of France to the decisive Battle of the Bulge and on to the end. Following in his father's footsteps, our guest this hour also is an Army veteran who studied law and particularly our Constitution. Besides being an accomplished author of four books, an attorney, and a gifted public speaker, He's also the host of his own weekly program here on America's Web Radio. That show is called Our Constitution. Before I bring him on, let me welcome two special groups of listeners that we try to recognize every week. That's our folks serving in the armed forces around this world, working hard to keep us at home safe so we can live our lives as we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free, folks. It's bought and paid for daily by our men and women in uniform. And we thank each and every one of them for what they do. I also want to be sure to mention our first responders who are here at home. That's those police, fire, EMT personnel, including the 911 operators, who rush to our aid when we need help. Thank each of you for what you do, and thank you so much for being listeners. Now, my guest this hour, Michael Conley. Not to be confused with that other fellow who writes those murder mysteries, our Michael Conley was educated in Louisiana, received his Doctorate of Law degree from Louisiana State University in 1973, the same year that he graduated from the U.S. Army Intelligence School at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. He served with the Army Security Security Agency, known to those of us who served as the ASA, until 1978 when he retired as an active duty captain. His distinguished law career... In, excuse me, his distinguished law career included service as the Special Assistant Attorney General for the State of Louisiana, Counsel for the U.S. Justice Foundation, General Counsel for Inter-American Security, and Representation at the Supreme Court. Before, <clears throat> let's see here, we were, we're here today 
let me get my facts straight. We're here today to talk with him about his book, The Detailed Account of the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion from D-Day to the End of the War. That book is titled The Mortarman. The author is Michael Connolly, and he is with us this morning. Michael, how are you, sir? Welcome to the prologue. Well, thank you for having me on, Doug, and I'm doing fine. Excellent. Hope you can forgive me for my gasps and coughs, but we've had crazy weather here in Georgia, and I'm about to choke, so we'll get through this. The story of your book now is told in third person, but it's 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 the story of your father and his unit. And your father was First Lieutenant Roy E. Connolly. Is that correct? That's correct. All righty. Now, he was a Iowa farm boy back when the war first started. Tell us who was Roy Connolly on June 6th of 1944? Well, he was actually sort of the old man of the unit. Uh, he was 21 years old, which for the uh, 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion made him one of the old men. Uh, the average age of the people who landed on D-Day with the 87th was 19 years old. And that, that tells you a little bit about how that war was fought. Uh, so my dad had been uh, in the Army for a while. He had enlisted. Uh, not long after Pearl Harbor, and he had uh, been involved as a platoon uh, sergeant, a training sergeant uh, at one point. But then was sent to OCS, where he became a second lieutenant, and then he was attached eventually to the 87th, which had been formed uh, basically down in Alabama. And they fired the big 4.2 mortars. These were the most powerful mortars in the world at that time. And they were very extremely accurate and extremely mobile, and so they, they became a very sought-after fire support unit uh, after D-Day, once they landed. But they were also always on the front lines. And so my dad, when he was 21 years old, landed on the side. They landed on the second wave at Utah Beach. If people look at the book, on the cover of the book, uh, there's a picture of some soldiers sitting down in what appears to be sort of a foxhole-type situation. The guy in the middle is my father, and that is Utah Beach. That is the day after Utah, the landings on Utah. Um, Dad, he had a whole bunch of jobs with the 87th. He never actually was involved in running a mortar battalion, or mortar platoon, I should say, and firing actual mortars. He started out as sort of a liaison officer uh, right after D-Day. He was going back and forth making sure that the supplies that were landed, because the landing took two or three days before they got the whole unit ashore, and making sure the supplies and the ammunition that was being landed got to the men who were scattered all over, because the 87th was made up of a battalion, about a thousand men, made up of four companies, and each company could be assigned to any unit that needed fire support on any given day. So the battalion was very seldom together. So Dad had to keep track with where each company was and what ammunition to get to them and this sort of thing. So he was running back and forth uh, between the, the beach and the front lines for three or four days. And he said he was always, somebody was always shooting at him. And half the time he didn't know who was shooting at him because he was barreled up and down the roads. And uh, then he later on in the, the war became uh, the logistics officer, basically, for the unit. He ran the motor pool. He was also, however, in charge of reconnaissance. So he would spend a lot of his time out along enemy lines or sometimes behind enemy lines 
looking for places where the mortars could deploy, looking for targets for the mortars. So he, he had a pretty uh, hairy experience in being in combat for 326 straight days like he was and like the whole battalion was. Go into a little more detail about exactly what this munitions were, the 4.2 mortars. Uh, I know some folks, most folks out there probably are aware, but for those who are not, describe it a little bit more in detail, would you? Well, the 4.2s uh, fired these heavy shells, and uh, each shell weighed about 25 pounds. So, you know, the, interestingly enough, when they landed at D-Day, uh, the initial landing, the only ammunition they had was what each man carried on his back, in his backpack, when they waded ashore. And that was like two rounds apiece, because that was all they could carry, because they also had some their food and personal ammunition, this sort of thing. But the 4.2s, you couldn't just pick these up and carry them on your shoulder. You see the in the movies, the, the mortarman moving forward with a mortar uh, barrel on their shoulder and carrying the tripod. Well, you couldn't do that with a 4.2. They were way too big and too heavy. So they had their vehicles, uh, mud hens they called them for the most part, uh, that they were all-terrain vehicles, as we supposed to be, and they would transport the mortars in these. And they would move them quickly, and they could set them up quickly, and their fire was extremely accurate. Now, the most important men in a mortar unit, particularly a 4.2 unit, were your forward observers. And these guys were up front picking out the targets for the mortars, and they would radio in the targets, give the mortars a coordinates, and the mortars would open fire. These guys were up on enemy lines or behind enemy lines, and the highest casualty rate among anybody, any units in the battalion, was among the... the uh, fire control officers, basically, the forward observers, because they, they were up front all the time, and they suffered heavily. And I described this to, in my book to a great extent. But the 4.2s were so accurate that they could drop rounds on moving tanks and actually knock out moving tanks. So if an infantry battalion or division was under attack, they would call in the mortars to supplement the artillery because the artillery uh, could not pin fire with that kind of pinpoint accuracy, not like the mortars could. Now, this weapon had been around for some time. In fact, uh, it was almost considered obsolete when the war began. But uh, opinion of that changed rather quickly, didn't it? Yes, it did. These these originally were the Stokes mortars of World War One, uh, the heavy mortars, and they were used primarily to fire chemical weapons back in World War One. World War II, of course, they had uh, banned the use of chemical weapons, although there were chemical weapons available to the battalion the whole time the war was going on. They just never were called on to use them. But the mortars were adapted to fire uh, two types of rounds, uh, high-explosive rounds, HE rounds, and white phosphorus rounds. Now, white phosphorus rounds were designed to provide smoke cover, uh, to cover infantry moving forward in the attack, and this sort of thing. But they also had a devastating effect on personnel that were around where they hit because they threw out literally burning phosphorus. And if this stuff got on somebody's skin, you couldn't put it out with water. You had to pick it out uh, with tweezers or a knife to get it off somebody's skin. So the, the Germans were terrified of these rounds. And the 4.2 mortar units found out quickly that they could be more effective on disrupting German troops uh, than the actual high-explosive rounds. Uh, in fact, in, in my book, and this is what makes it kind of unique, is there are two excerpts from diaries of German soldiers. 
who fought against the 87th at the Hurricane Forest and talked about the white phosphorus rounds and talked about how terrifying they were. And these things became a very effective weapon uh, for our military, both in Europe and, and in uh, the Pacific. We're talking with Michael Conley. We're talking about his book, The Mortarman. Michael, tell the folks where they can get this book. Well, they could uh, get it virtually anywhere. Uh, Amazon has it, both in the Kindle edition, the ebook edition, and the paperback edition. Uh, Barnes and Nobles has the same thing. So it's available in both editions. If they want to order a copy directly from me, uh, they can go to my website at uh, Michael Connelly, C O N N E L L Y, dot Jigsy, J I G S Y dot com. And they can order the book directly from me if they want to have a signed copy, something like that. And, of course, I make more money if they order directly from me, so I'm always encouraging that. But they can find it anywhere. It's become a a good seller on Amazon. I can tell the folks they're going to want the paperback. Pictures don't come through on the Kindle. Listen, we are here this morning on the prologue with Michael Connolly. We will be back with more after these short messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back on the prologue on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here this morning with Michael Connolly. He's a fellow host here on the network. And uh, we're here talking to him because he is also an author. He's been telling us about his book, The Mortarman. And the story basically is about his father and his unit in World War II. We've gotten some details about that. We're going to go back to it. But, Michael, I wanted to move to After the War. Uh, your dad went to school and he studied geology. He became a geophysicist and actually a vice president for Chevron Oil Company. What I'd like to know, as you were growing up, did he talk very much to you about the war when you were younger? 
Well, he did talk to us about the war, and uh, he uh, didn't talk much about the horrors of the war. Uh, he would tell us funny stories about the war, uh, some interesting things that happened to him. And But he had a diary, and this was where the basis of the book came. He kept a meticulous diary from shortly before, uh, actually D-Day, the landing, all the way to the end of the war. And I had read parts of that diary when I was growing up, and every Christmas Eve, he would read from that diary about the Christmas Eve, 1944, when his unit, the entire battalion was together. They had pulled, been pulled off the lines at the Hurricane Forest and had actually been sent back because the Battle of the Bulge had started. And they were going in to try to, to stem the tide of the, of the Germans that were basically overrunning all the American positions. And on Christmas Eve, their company was at a monastery. And it was a very snowy, beautiful night. But they could hear in the distance the tank battle going on between the American tanks, the Sherman tanks, and the, and the Tigers. Well, the Shermans didn't have a chance. And the men of the 87th knew this. And they knew that on Christmas Day, they would be sent into the lines to fight these Tiger tanks. And they were sitting there, and the monks were giving them uh, cheese and bread and wine. And they were sitting there, and they had a radio on with the armed forces broadcasting. And Bing Crosby came on singing Silent Night. And or White Christmas, I should say, singing White Christmas. And my dad looked at his company commander, Captain Marshall. And he said the man was the toughest person he ever knew in his life. And the company commander was sitting there with tears streaming down his face. And there was a dry eye in place that night. And so he would read that to us on Christmas Eve. And when he died in 1987, I picked up and started reading it on Christmas Eve to my children. And it became a tradition for the family and still is. And... Then I actually sat down and read his entire diary a few years later. And I realized what these people had gone through. I mean, these guys were in combat for 326 straight days. They suffered 120% casualties when you counted everybody who was in the original unit and all the people that were, were assigned to the union as replacements. Their casualty rate was horrific. And, I mean, the men that were killed, wounded, or... Uh, captured, you know, it was just unbelievable what they went through. And 326 days in combat is is something that, you know, people just can't comprehend when we tell them that. So I started, I decided to try to write things in his diary or turn his diary uh, into something that could be published. And then I got a break. I found out that they had formed an association of the survivors of the unit. And it was online. I was able to contact them, and they, this association had been formed after my father died. I was able to contact them, and they sent me a membership list with the contact information, and I sent out questionnaires to the survivors. At that point, there were about 300, and this was when I started writing the book in the year 2000. There were about 300 of them, and I asked them for to fill out a questionnaire, tell me about how they had served and what they'd done. Uh, some of them called me up. They sent me diaries of their own. They sent me pictures. They sent me a remarkable amount of information. I also managed to get a hold of the company and battalion records for the four companies, which gave me the day-to-day -day operations. I knew every, at that point 
where every company was on any given day, how many rounds they fired, what units they were supporting, and what casualties they suffered, and this sort of thing. So by 2004, I had just about completed the book, or 2005, and they had a reunion of the 87th Computer Memorial Battalion in Baltimore, Maryland. And I went to the reunion. My wife and I went up there because I wanted to meet some of these guys in person, particularly one of them who had been a good friend of my father's in B Company. There were only 11 of them there. Uh, by the, but I got them together after they had a banquet, and the banquet was kind of interesting because my oldest son, who is a major in the Army, at that time was a uh, first lieutenant and just back from Iraq. Uh, he'd actually done, he's done eight, like eight tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he, he was back in a base in Virginia, so he was close enough to drive up for the banquet. So there he is in his uniform, and there I am. And then we've got the guys from my father's generations. We're three generations represented there. After the, the banquet was over, I got these 11 guys in the hotel bar, got them around a big table, bought them all drinks, and put my little recorder right there in the center and let them start talking. And they told stories that their families told me later they'd never heard before. And I said, well, that's the way we are. That's the way we veterans are, is we'll talk to each other, but a lot of times we won't talk to you. And that was what I learned about um, when I learned things about my father. He had never told us, you know, when he talked to us about the war. So he, like I said, he was open about it. He talked occasionally about the horrors of war, but... You know, mostly he tried to uh, to forget about the worst of it. But a lot of it was in his diary, and I heard a lot of it from these men. And shortly thereafter, I published the book. At the time I published the book, there were about 75 of these guys still alive. And now I only know of two out there that are still still with us. You mentioned that you lost your dad in 87. Uh, he would have still been a fairly young man at that point. Yes, he was on 66, and uh, we don't know what, whether it was a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, he, he had been in good health, and he was out walking every day and, uh, you know, was doing fine as far as we knew. And one day he was mowing his yard and just uh, dropped dead. We never we didn't want to have an autopsy or anything because it didn't matter how he what killed him. Uh, we just knew we lost him. And we lost my mother years before. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a blow to us. He was, like I said, he was only 66. Oh, yeah. And you say now that the, the unit, the 87th, that there's only two that you're aware of that are still with us. That's correct. One right here in Texas. The, the generation that saved the entire world, and we're losing them quickly. I wanted to mention, uh, we don't want to give the book away at all, but Chapter 15, you just talked about how you gathered information from the other members and got to talk with other members of this unit. Chapter 15 of this book is unique. You don't find it too often. You give the reader short bios of the men of the 87th, and you include many pictures of these brave people. Talk a little bit about that chapter, would you? Well, the stories of them are so interesting because, uh, you know, these guys were really in the thick of it. I mean, they landed on D-Day. They were in the Battle of the, of, uh, the Sherbert Peninsula. Uh, they were in the Hurricane Forest. Uh, if anybody had seen the movie Band of Brothers uh, about the 101st Airborne Division, if you'll remember the first real battle they were in after they landed uh, 
during D-Day was they had to take a, a small town, uh, and I, I'm also going to bring you about the, the name of the town, but it was a small town that they had to take and uh, behind enemy lines. And B Company, my dad's unit, was assigned to support the 101st Airborne, and they went after that, that town. And it was a, a horrific battle, but they they were successful in taking the town. And this was the way they fought throughout the entire war. And the men who fought were, fa- you know, it was very interesting to, to talk to these guys because they came from all walks of life. They, they represented a lot of ethnic backgrounds. Interestingly enough, they, my dad's company, B Company, uh, they sort of called them the Irish Brigade because almost all of the officers in that company were of Irish heritage. But the people came from all over the country. They came from Pennsylvania. They came from the Midwest. They came from the South. And they had various stories to tell. And when I did get a chance to talk to them, either in person at the reunion or in some cases on the telephone, it was just fascinating. But listening to them talk to each other was even better because I wrote an article for my blog here recently called I Never Met a War Hero. And I talk about the fact that you sit there with veterans, and when I talk to these guys, I knew I had their information. We're sitting at that table, and I'm talking to them. I know what medals they won. I know what heroic actions they were involved in. I knew if they had earned Purple Hearts or Bronze Stars or Silver Stars. Yet, they wouldn't talk about that. Their buddies would talk about it. But these guys that had actually done this, this and earned all this, they would sit there and they would say, oh, I'm not a hero. My buddy over there, now he was a hero. Let me tell you what he did. And that was the way I, I found out about a lot about these guys. And then I talked to some of their families and they told me more. And it just, it turned into a fascinating research project to find out and see in person and find out the personal stories of the men that, that we fought in World War II and that, you know, we had basically at that point, by the uh, early uh, 21st century, we were forgetting these guys. And we uh, they were dying off. And I was able to talk to them, and I was able to get their stories. And I felt like that had to be a part of the book, and that's how that chapter was done. Well, it's an amazing chapter, and, and it gives people insight as to who the folks that this story is woven around, who they actually are. These are real human beings. And like Michael just said, we lose sight of this generation. We, we don't understand today. When you talk about the heroism of the war, people don't really understand that. And uh, we're losing our history. We're losing these heroes. And it's something that uh, our generation needs to pick up the banner and start talking about much more. Uh, tell the folks again, Michael, where they can get this book and how they can get in touch with you for more information about it. Well, they can go to my blog and website, which is www.michaelconnelly.com. And there they can find out about the Mortimer and how to order it directly from me. And they can find out about the other books I've written. Or they can get the book as an e-book. They can get it on, on Amazon. Or they can get it on Barnes & Noble. But as you say, I recommend the paperback because there are a lot of pictures in this book, Some, most of which have never been published before anywhere. These are pictures I got from the guys who I describe in the book. They're their personal photographs and some, some horrific photographs of the, one of the, of the concentration camp, the death camp they liberated. But those pictures don't show up very well on Kindle 
or as an e-book. So I recommend getting the paperback. The Barnes and Noble says has both the e-book and the paperback. Amazon has it. Uh, it's been a big seller on Amazon for the last couple of years. And so people can get it there, or if they want an autographed copy, they can order it directly through me. And we're here on the prologue. We're talking about the book The Mortarman by Michael Connolly. And we will be back with more after these short messages. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. This is Michael Connolly inviting you to listen each Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern to my show, Our Constitution, only on America's Web Radio. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. We're here with... Michael Connolly on the prologue this morning. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We've been talking about his book, The Mortarman. It is about the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion that served valiantly in World War II from the beaches at Normandy, actually Utah Beach, all the way through the Battle of the Bulge and the end of the war. Now, Michael, we've been talking about your dad and the men that served with him. These men, uh, there's insights in this book about the, uh, the situations more than just the war itself. That's bad enough. But there were problems with some of the equipment that they had shipped to them, things like rounds that wouldn't fire and rusty equipment and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, they had a, they had a tough time because the, uh, uh, at one point they lost a, a bunch of men in one of the platoons when uh, rounds started exploding just as they left the tube. Now, the way a mortar works is you take a round, and I, I fired the, these mortars. You take a round, you pull the pin, you drop it into the mortar tube, and then it sets itself off and propels the actual round out of the tube downrange towards your target. 
what was happening is they were pulling the pins, dropping them into the tubes, and the round was detonating as soon as it left the, the mortar, left the tube. So it was killing the men who were firing these. And this happened several times and uh, with devastating consequences for the, the platoons. And they did not find out until much later that the company that was making these rounds was actually making defect, defective rounds and knew it, but were shipping them off anyway. And there were some prosecutions around the end of the war over this. But that was one of the things they had to deal with. And then they had to deal with these, these mud hens, these vehicles that they used, which were always breaking down. So they had equipment problems. They had to, you know, more teams, when they moved, they had to move quickly because they were being called to a site where there was a battle about to happen or was happening, and they needed to be able to get there. So a lot of times they would have to take equipment that would have been scattered over two or three vehicles and pile it all into one along with the men who were going to you know, fire the equipment. So this was, was not easy. And then, of course, they had the, what they suffered during uh, the Battle of the Bulge, the cold, uh, the, uh, the lack of rations sometimes, the uh, hot food you know, just wasn't available, and the, the rations uh, were, were something else. Uh, one of the things that then my father was probably the only World War II veteran I ever met who liked spam. Because canned spam was one of the rations that they would get all the time. And the men got sick of it. And after the war, nobody would eat it. Except my dad. He loved it. He'd still love the spam. But that was the type of thing they were going through, was suffering from sometimes lack of ammunition. Although my dad uh, did a good job of keeping them supplied with the ammunition. But they uh, during the Battle of the Balls, Hurricane Forest, they had boots that were not made for that type of cold weather. A lot of men suffered frostbite. Uh, you know, it was just a, it was a, a tough fight. And this went on for 326 straight days for them. And these men that we're talking about, many of them were actually too young to join, but they lied in order to get in. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Yeah, there were several of them that I talked to that uh, were like 16 years old or 17 years old. And uh, in the case of 17-year-old, you could get your parents to sign for for you to get in. If you were 16 years old, uh, they couldn't even sign to let you in, but basically uh, these guys would lie about their age and they would enlist. And I'm frankly, I don't think the military was that concerned over that. They needed people and they needed people quickly. And because we were fighting a war on two fronts. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the greatest generation and these men and women that were there then. They had come up through some pretty hard times before that. These are the folks... You know, you lose sight of these things, these details, that what created them, what made them want to go and defend the country at the age of 16 years old and give up their life like they did. Well, these folks were raised back in the 20s and 30s. Things weren't exactly a cakewalk in this country back then. These were tough, hardened people that had gotten through this. Really, they were, they were out of that and were making their way in the world, and then all of a sudden that lifestyle is threatened. So, excuse me for taking over there, but I just wanted to mention that. These, these people were special, and uh, we really don't need to ever forget them. No, they went through the Depression. My, my dad and his family were, were fortunate in that they had, were on a farm in Iowa, so they at least had food. But as far as having money for anything else, it was slim and none. And I know my dad, I'll tell you a story about my dad. And My, my dad was a scoutmaster of my scout troop when I was a boy. 
And I'm an Eagle Scout. My brother's an Eagle Scout. I became a Scout Master. All four of my sons became Eagles. But my dad never made Eagle Scout. And that was the, the biggest regret he ever had. And the reason he didn't make it was because you had to have 21 merit badges, uh, just like you do now. Some of them were required. Now, my dad actually had 36 merit badges, and that was out of only 60 that existed because he loved scouting. But he had to have life-saving. And the only way you could get life-saving merit badge was to go to scout summer camp. Well, scout summer camp was $1 for a week. It took my dad two summers before he was able to save up enough money that he could afford to go to scout camp. So he goes to the scout camp to earn the life-saving merit badge, and so he can become an Eagle Scout, and he catches pleurisy, and he gets sent home. And this was in the summer of 1941, or actually summer of 1939. And he, once you turn 18, you can't become an Eagle Scout after that. So he never made it. He turned 18, and a couple of years later, of course, he's in the war. And uh, But that's the way, that's who my dad was. And that's who a lot of these guys were. They were remarkable individuals who had gone through a lot in their lives already, and now they were laying their lives on the line uh, fighting in World War II. And I, I'll give you another example of, of the way that the soldiers didn't talk about being heroes. My dad used to tell us a story after we started getting old enough to see what was in his footlocker. We saw that medal with that little star on it at the end, and he told us that was a bronze star. And we wanted to know how he earned it. Well, he sort of turned it into a humorous story. And the, the story was that he had seen some of his men pinned down in town in Germany and by a machine gun that was firing from the second story of a building. And he had run over there and thrown a hand grenade uh, up into the, the window and knocked out the machine gun. And he, the way he told the story was that he was standing there with his back against the wall and he threw that hand grenade up over his head and he said that his first thought was, that thing's just going to come back and land right in my lap. And I'm never going to have any children. And uh, <laughs> that was the way he told the story. Well, it turned out that when we heard it from his buddies, the basics of the story was true. But it was unbelievable because he had rushed that machine gun position while under fire from several sources. And it stood under there and had taken that hand grenade and thrown it over his head into that second-story building. And then in the book, I also talk about another situation where my dad was supposed to receive the Bronze Star and did not receive it because the war ended before the, the paperwork got processed, apparently. And that was when they took, started taking artillery fire while they were moving into Germany. And the infantry, some infantrymen uh, got killed. My dad's uh, jeep had pulled over into the woods. And some infantrymen were killed along the road, and a lot of them were wounded. And in the middle of this artillery fire, my dad goes running out there and pulls two or three of these guys to safety. And, you know, so that's the type of thing that you didn't hear from the men themselves. That's what you heard from their buddies. Absolutely. Another insight that you offer in this book is talking about the medical care that was there out in the field. Uh, you mentioned bronze stars. Purple hearts were everywhere. I mean, people were getting wounded, some very severely, just minutes apart, the medical care out there on the field was kind of sparse, and the training for the field medics was, what, what can we say, lacking. Uh, you didn't exactly send your best doctors out there to be next to the mortars. The doctors were in the field hospitals or, you know, at best. So 
the treatment for the wounded really was kind of do it yourself or, or learn on the job. Talk a little bit about that for us, would you? Well, some of the people that I, I interviewed, one of the people particularly I interviewed for the book, was in fact one of the combat medics. And these guys, they were they had the basic training. Uh, they basically were, you know, trained in first aid and trained to stop the, the bleeding and this sort of thing. But they couldn't do surgery. They had they had no defibrillators. They couldn't get somebody's heart star, started. Uh, they basically would take care of the wounded soldiers as best they could until they could ship them back to the aid station, the battalion aid station. And But here was the problem. Once these soldiers went back to battalion aid, they w- would be returned to a unit, but not necessarily their unit. And you have to understand that one of the things I found among the mainly 87th was tremendous loyalty, not only to their country, but to their unit, to each other. So what you had, and you had a series of situations, and I talked to some of these people, people who were wounded, and very seriously, and they would get the uh, the combat medics to sew them up as best they could, uh, to bandage up their wounds, and to give them whatever they had available as far as a sulfur powder or something like this to keep the wound from getting infected, and they would refuse to go back to battalion aid. They would even have the medics hide their wounds, help them to hide their wounds, because they knew if they went back to battalion aid, when they were well enough to go back into combat, they might be assigned to any other unit. There was no guarantee they'd be assigned to the 87th. This happened repeatedly. And so you had people that were, you know, these medics were unbelievable as far as the bravery. I mean, they would go out into the, you know, they weren't allowed to carry weapons. At least they were supposed to carry weapons. Uh, they were, would go out and they would become targets for German snipers. So they'd see that red cross on their helmet and they knew if they took out a medic, then they would probably cause the deaths of, of other people who wouldn't get medical care at all. So they were constantly targets. And these were unbelievably brave people. But, and they did the best they could, but, you know, your medical care, you didn't back then have helicopters that could take the guys from the front line to a major hospital and they could get surgery. And you didn't have immediate treatment for things like frostbite. And a lot of guys during the Battle of the Bulge lost toes and in some cases their feet because they, the frostbite was so severe. And, <coughs> excuse me, they couldn't get adequate care. But the medics, I, I got to tell you, and my dad would tell you this too, uh, the medics were the bravest guys in the unit as far as he was concerned because they were the ones that were out there unarmed and would run out in the middle of the fire uh, to help a wounded fellow soldier. Folks, we're listening to Michael Conley. He's telling us about details and insights that are shared to everyone in his book, The Mortarman. It's available through his website, Michael Conley, J-I-G-S-Y dot com, or through Amazon. My name's Doug Dahlgren. This is the prologue, and we'll be back after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Peter 
Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. We're here with Michael Conley, not that one. This is the Michael Conley you need to know about. He's written several books. One is The Mortarman, and we're here talking about that with him. Uh, we were talking about the medical care on the field and the bravery of those medics and the guys who ran out in the, in the middle of the gunfire and everything else, explosions everywhere, to deal with the injuries. Your dad had a kind of a near-miss situation. Uh, fortunately, he wasn't hit. Uh, in this case, but uh, he later found a hole in his helmet. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, he had several of misses. Uh, he would, uh, because he was out front, like I said, sometimes behind enemy lines, and, and snipers would go after him and this sort of thing. And uh, one one time he was, a uh, uh, sniper fire went right up under his legs uh, through his Jeep. And uh, he'd, he'd been out there uh, basically doing recon and discovered that there was a hole in his helmet when he got back. And uh, he didn't know where he'd come from. It, apparently, his head was hard enough that the bullet did penetrate his head, obviously. <laughs> and that's, that's what I used to accuse him of. And uh, he, he doesn't know to this day, or never knew, who put that hole in his helmet. He assumed it was a German, but you, couldn't even, you didn't even know back then. But he, he decided that... Uh, he was pretty blessed, and actually my father was one of the few men in the 87th that went through the entire war and never got wounded, because like wow. I said, they had 120% casualties. Almost all of those men in the original unit were wounded at some point and were treated and, and stayed with the unit, but my dad made it through, and this was just one of his close calls. There's a section at the rear of the book that I want to I want to mention. I know you want to mention it as well. Uh, after the war, years after the war, uh, some of the soldiers from the other side made contact, and you've got a section in there that was written by one of the German soldiers, his perspective of what had gone on, and you've included that in the book. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was interesting. There was a one of the veterans was named uh, Bruce Serbian. Uh, one of the 87th veterans, and he sent me a wealth of information. And he sent me a copy 
excerpts from his diary, and he had been uh, in a company, and I talk about him quite a bit in there because I also got to, to know his son, and he had been in contact with a couple of German soldiers, and I don't know how he had met them or how he had gotten their names, but he had been in contact with two German soldiers who had been in the Battle of the Hurricane Forest and who had remembered the, the horrific mortar fire, particularly the white phosphorus. And they had written about that in their diaries. And they had exchanged this information with Bruce. Well, Bruce got it, got it to me, and I told him, I said, well, contact these two men and get their permission for me to use this in my book. And I, he got the permission. I did put it in the book. And I have had gotten letters from both of these German soldiers. I don't know if they're still alive now. I got these letters several years ago. Both of them thanking me for putting in their side of the story and what they had been through, too. So that makes the book kind of remarkable, and that's one reason it's selling fairly well in Europe is because of the uh, those stories in there. Folks, this book is a wealth of information. It's got rosters of the men and citation rosters and just all kinds of information that... Uh, Folks that are into studying history, you're just going to have to have this for your library. I want to move on real quick. We're running out of time this morning, Michael. It seems like that happens. But after uh, this particular book, I want to talk about you and your service and your studies of the law. You are primarily, you're a lawyer. You're not practicing currently, but your studies of the law primarily were around the Constitution. And you go out and you speak about this, and in fact, your program that's on this network is based on that. Tell the folks a little bit about what you do on your show. Well, I talk about the Constitution. I have guests on there that talk about the Constitution. Uh, I am a constitutional lawyer. I am currently I'm retired, but I'm currently licensed to practice again because I'm running the United States Justice Foundation, which is a constitutional law firm. I'm the executive director and I supervise attorneys around the country, and we file briefs in the Supreme Court and Courts of Appeal and state courts uh, supporting constitutional law, uh, supporting people who are losing their First Amendment rights, their Second Amendment rights, and we are constantly fighting the federal government as they try to impose more rules and regulations on people which we feel are unconstitutional. So I, I speak about that all over the country, and right now one of the biggest things we're involved in is the veterans, and this, of course, is important to me because I have two sons still serving. Obviously, I'm a veteran. I commanded American Legion Post for two years. And veterans are being denied their constitutional rights. They're getting letters from the VA saying, because of your mental or physical disabilities, we're going to declare you incompetent and in your own financial affairs. And once we do that, you can no longer own, purchase, or possess a firearm or ammunition. If you do, you're guilty of a felony. And then they take these veterans, and there's virtually no due process here. They take these veterans, and they put them on the NICS list, the National Instant Criminal Background Checklist, under the category of being mentally defective to a point of being a danger to themselves or others. Now, there's no adjudication here. Veterans, and I've got this in writing from the VA, veterans are being declared incompetent because of minor PTSD, because they might have been depressed over the loss of a buddy at some point, they're being declared incompetent because they let their spouses pay the family bills or because they have the bills automatically paid by the bank. We've got 200,000 of them out there that are in this situation. And we're fighting that uh, tooth and nail around the country on individual cases. That's just one of the things we're doing. So, you know, that's why I'm so interested in the Constitution because I'm, I've been defending it every day for years. 
you offer a pocket-sized booklet uh, about the Constitution. Tell the folks a little about it and where they can get that. Well, the booklet, uh, we're eventually going to get that on Amazon, but in other places. But right now it's available only through me. And it's a, I take each article, each section, each amendment of the Constitution, I put them in the way they're originally written, and then I put my comments in about what they actually mean. And I had two PhDs contact me not long after this booklet came out and said, you know, until we read your booklet, we did not know that the phrase separation of church and state is not in the Constitution anywhere. And that's what people are finding out. And a lot of people are ordering copies of this booklet, not just for themselves, but to hand out to schools. We had a Rotary Club in South Texas order 500 copies to hand out to incoming juniors in six school districts. They can go to www.constitution.jigsy.com to find out how to order the booklet online directly from me, or they can also go to my website and blog, michaelconnelly.jigsy.com, and they can order it through there. When is your show on, Michael? Excuse me? When is your program on, on America's Web Radio? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's on uh, at uh, 3 o'clock. We broadcast 3 o'clock uh, Wednesdays at Central Time, 3 o'clock live. And, then, of course, like all the programs, it's uh, archived after that. And what I do is I try to talk about the Constitution and talk about the current situation with the Constitution, what I, what's happening in our federal government, how many of the actions are unconstitutional, and violate the balance of powers uh, portion of the Constitution. So we had a nice and interesting guest on. I had one the other day who was talking about possible EMP attack and uh, what, what how devastating that would be in our country. And that's like finding uh, a magnetic pulse attack. And uh, it would basically knock out, would kill anybody outright, but it would knock out our power and knock out our vehicles and this sort of thing. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a new novel right now that is based on what would happen, how the American people would respond after such an attack. And uh, so that, that will be coming out sometime, hopefully by the end of this year. Have you got a title you're working on with that one? Yeah, it's called A Rag, and I'm not going to explain that to you. You have to read the novel to understand what, what all I'm right, talking about. All right, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you do have several other books that are in print, too, besides the Mortarman. Uh, real briefly, just list those for us. We're running out of time, but tell the folks what they are. Well, I have a novel, a patriotic novel, called Amiyali, A Story of America. And Amiyali is in Cherokee words, and the, the book explains uh, what that means. And uh, that has become very popular on Amazon and other places. It's also an e-book. And the, the left-wingers out there hate it uh, because it's... It's a patriotic novel about America trying to recover from being taken over by foreign powers. And then I've got a, a book of camp, basically campfire stories called Riders in the Sky, The Ghosts and Legends of Philmont Scout Ranch, which is very popular among young people, particularly. Uh, Philmont is a, a big scout ranch out in New Mexico. I've been there four times myself, and I collected all the ghost stories and because it's supposedly the most haunted place in the world. And uh, that, that book is there, and then uh, we do basically amateur ghost hunting. We collect stories all over the country. So I have another book called America's Liveliest Ghost, which includes stories about Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, it, it's become fairly popular, too, and it's available also on all the websites like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Excellent. Listen, I've got several other questions, but we're going to have to have you back to get to those. 
Uh, we've run, run through an hour here. Michael Connolly, I want to thank you so much for being here on the prologue today. I hope you've had a good time. I did. Doug. Thank you very much. Look forward to doing it again. And let's tell the folks one more time uh, where they can get your book. MichaelConnolly.jigsy.com. Uh, that's where they can order copies directly through me, or they can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. They're all on there. Outstanding. Again, thank you for being with us this morning. Listeners, you have been introduced. I hope you'll go to uh, Michael's website and order that book. And for now, I am Doug Dahlgren. I thank you for listening to the prologue. My guest this hour, Michael Conley, and myself say to each and every one of you, have a great rest of your weekend. Be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not one of Michael's, maybe you'll get one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care now. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.